I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. It's been a calendar year since the COVID lockdown sent us home all over the nation and the world. In New York, it came as close as anything ever has to shutting down the city that never sleeps. And on this episode, we explore the state of the city. Three leaders return to the show to offer experience and expertise. The first is Big Apple Royalty, Darcy Stakem, Chairman and head of CBRE's New York City Capital Markets Group. Darcy's stratospheric sales figures once earned her the mantle, queen of the skyscrapers from the Wall Street Journal. She'll share her market viewpoint with a focus on office. I think that there's a lot of product that could go to market and it just need to show a depth of bidding. So we're getting ready to go. Then our vagabond shoes will stray right to the very heart of the retail sector with another heavy hitter, Annette Healy, Executive Vice President of our Tri-State Regional Retail Brokerage Services Group. Annette will share her insights into a sector where she's been our company's top producer for three years running. Innovation is what retail is known for. I mean, retail like New York City is ever resourceful and ever resilient. And then it's an encore from Marianne Tai, a Bronx, New York native, whose eye for art, design, and deal-making has helped transform the skyline. From Times Square to the World Trade Center and beyond, the CEO of CBRE's New York Tri-State Region for nearly 20 years, Marianne brings her big deal perspective to our discussion of this ever-evolving metropolis. New York is a place where you only succeed if you develop strategies to overcome obstacles because obstacles are a given in the New York requirement. Coming up, the finale of our New York Story special featuring Marianne Tai, Ned Healy, and leading off in our lineup, Darcy Stakem. That's right now on The Weekly Take. So Darcy, let's start with a big picture question. What is the state of New York right now? I think that there is optimism and pessimism in equal measures. It depends on which side of the area of real estate you're on. I do believe leasing brokers are having a very hard time of it right now. And in capital markets, I saw on the sale of 41010th, which we did dead in the heart of COVID for almost a billion dollars, we had a lot of international bidders. And I mean, down to the wire, marking up contracts, international bidders. What does that tell me? They've seen their cities go through turmoil. They've watched London go through turmoil. They've watched Paris go through turmoil, Berlin. But they believe in global cities and the need for them and the desire of young people to work in them. And those young people that are at home right now in this global city, get back to work. You're here for the reason of the livelihood and the synergy. And so I have good, strong optimism for the future. It's just going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, Let's talk about that foreign capital for just a moment. Um, What are you advising them of people that want to get into the market today? Look, I think that there's a lot of product that could go to market and it just need to show a depth of bidding. So we're getting ready to go. We're going to go out with uh, at least two, if not three properties. And that's bold, but it's positional. We've really looked at the markets. What happens in every cycle? Flight to quality. If you got stuck on a side street, you move to an avenue. If you're in an A building, you move to a trophy, right? If, you're, if your lease line's right, you're going to take advantage of this time and this moment. So do you buy a multi-tenant office building? Yes, if it's A to double A. 
do you buy one on a side street right now? Yeah, if you're buying it out of bankruptcy and it's a serious discount. So there are buyers that are by the pound. This is what we come back to. This is the buy the pound market, right? <laughs> or it's the flight to quality market. So it's the stuff in between that right now it's very difficult to justify spending time on. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are going to be uh, bringing uh, to market some of these multi-tenanted offices. And it's, by the way, not unusual that you're bringing the higher quality product um, first uh, because that's what happened in multifamily. That's what happened in industrial last year. Now we're seeing the quality spectrum in industrial and multifamily. Some of the lesser quality stuff is coming to market as well. And I think that'll be the trend we see in New York too. Would you agree, Darcy? Yes, and I look, I think there's an interesting phenomenon occurring. The office got hit with it's a capital hog. But look at what's happening in the industrial space as an example. Robotics are changing how the real estate has to function so much that like you can change an office building to be something else. A lot of these warehouse facilities are just going to have to be torn down. Let's talk capital hog. Right. But I do think right now that, look, we have two deals closing in the next few weeks because we've stayed working throughout COVID and we've continued to try when the client either wanted us to go or the product was right. And I'm saying this key thing to all buyers, your biggest competitor is the debt markets. I have a building I valued at $475 million. I can borrow $425 million from my client easy solution, right? <laughs> why sell? Why pay tax consequences? Just ride it out for another day. Yep. Well, I think that's also good news to hear about the debt capital markets healing. You mentioned at the beginning here, Darcy, about international capital. What other capital sources are you seeing coming in, high net worth or otherwise? Yeah, look, we usually see the ultra high net worth lead us out. And that's, in fact, that's what exactly happened on 41010th. Although, their biggest competitor was a massive institution with global capital behind them. So we definitely are seeing ultra high net worth money. We're definitely seeing U.S. pension money. And they just want to measure the risk and make a decision. I would say that this has not been the typical cycle where everybody pulls back and says, I will do nothing until some hero leads us out. It's creating a different form of cycle from my viewpoint. Let me ask you a little bit of a tactical question. How does a high net worth individual that you haven't transacted with beat that big international institution that you have? It's a, it's a question mark that I'm sure you get a lot, Darcy. What do you say to them? <laughs> I made them have multiple people call on their behalf. I called all of their individual investors. Um, you know, I made them set up four phone calls where the people are going to write the $50 million and the $25 million checks so I could have direct conversations with them. They have to do a slightly lighter contract markup and they probably have to put up a bigger contract deposit. So they just have to want it more and they have to listen to strong guidance. And that's where I always say, this is my market. A white hot market is pretty much anybody's market because you can just throw it out there and it's gonna get done. A difficult market where you need reputation and track record and strong sage advice, that's my market. So this is my market. There you go. So Darcy, let's shift now to the other asset types. Talk to me for just a moment about how some of these smaller asset classes are growing in New York. Look, right now the alternatives are where all the capital wants to go. So they want to go to life science, they want to go to cold storage, they want to go to, to data. This is a little bit of if you build it, they will come. 
right? We don't have as robust of a leasing pipeline as say Boston does, but we have all the scientists, all the talent and all the money. So we got to get people to come in here, put the ground stakes in, and then they'll get it done. You know, the Georgetown deal over on 11th Avenue just signed a big lease with Mount Sinai. And th these leases are happening. Deerfield has a deal pending on Park Avenue South. It's there. It's just you got to move to it. You know, on the storage side of it, it's look, it's, look at the size of the city. Look at the volume. I think what Internet sales used to go up 12 percent a year and they went up 40 some odd percent. So think about New York City, how many packages were probably delivered here. I don't care how many people think people moved out. It was like 400,000 people in a city of 9 million, right? <laughs> Last mile delivery in this city is going to be an explosive growth area. So there'll be areas for people to invest. Give us your point of view on when retail comes back and how in New York City. Oh, it's, it's already coming back. I decided to play tourist in New York City two weekends ago. Went to, you know, walk the High Line, got the last reservation to walk the High Line during that block of time. And then we went into the Hudson Yards Mall. And not only were there more people there than I expected, they were shopping. They had bags in their hands. And by the way, there were tourists. The languages they were speaking, the clothing that they were wearing, maybe they were violating protocol, but they were there. And I mentioned that to somebody who said, oh, yeah, I was there the weekend before. Same thing. I then tried to go pick a new purse on 57th Street, which I like to do every couple of years, and was told I had to wait 25 to 30 minutes to get into Louis Vuitton. I went shopping in Dior instead, but I said it. But even there, I had to wait. And the people coming out had bags and bags. So luxury's already started. Revenge retail's ready to go. Uh, side street restaurants in New York City, I think, are doing better in COVID because they can build the structures on the sidewalk and don't have the same traffic problem as the avenues. So it may be interesting to see how restaurants look at some of this stuff going forward. What are you seeing in the in the world of ESG capital in New York, Darcy, and how might it apply to uh, to women's businesses? Yeah, look, I'm the co-head of the diversity committee of the Real Estate Board of New York. And so within that, we're obviously tackling the ESG and looking to take this down to lower levels, meaning in high schools, to start getting people to think more about real estate because people think of real estate mostly as residential real estate brokers and don't understand it. A company like ours with, what, 100,000 employees that only 3,500 of them are brokers paid that way. So um, it's really education, I think, is critical. Keeping the conversation going is critical. And I do think that there's been enough of a change that we will see a path forward. I just think generally couples have to have a more honest conversation with each other about balance in the home to allow women to move forward. And women have to stop saying, oh, no, 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 this all naturally falls to me, I'm the mom, and say, if they want the career, how to have that conversation and strike the balance. A couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. What's the future of work from home in New York City? I get it for some people, it works. But for me, it doesn't work at all. For my team, it doesn't work at all. The speed with which I can hang up this, this conversation in which three ideas have sprouted in my mind and walk out and assign it to three different people while preparing for the pitch I have in an hour. And that's why work from home doesn't work when you want to work at this speed and at this level of success. So 
will there be some? Yes, I imagine there will be. Will there be then somebody saying, well, I could just hire that job in India? I think there will be. And I think people are also beginning to recognize that work from home is way more expensive than they thought. So there's all those issues. We're still in a very opaque landscape on the issue of work from home. I don't think it works. And I think it's our social responsibility to get back to work when you're in a city like New York and 20 New Yorkers depend on whether or not I and others are at the office. That is certainly um, a, a very important comment that we're in this together. Would that be a message that you, you'd share, Darcy? Absolutely. I do think when you said the ESG, the social responsibility, I think the pandemic has really brought that clearly to the forefront. And I've always looked at it that way. If I make my money in New York City, you know, when you talk to Marianne or Annette, you know, we all are deeply involved in charities because we do well in this city. So we give back to this city as a way of saying thank you and we're grateful. I have one more question. State of New York today and when does it get back to what you consider to be New York or maybe it's never left? Look, New York is still not New York. I'm looking across town and there's like eight cars where there should be 50. So we still do have a good amount of recovery. But I have to stress to everybody, New York typically sends $35 billion to the federal government every year. Texas takes in $10 billion. Florida takes in 60 If New York isn't sending money to the federal government, your taxes are going up no matter where you are. So help us get New York back on track. Uh, Any final thoughts you'd like to share uh, today? We're going to get through it. We're all going to learn something new from it. Every cycle is very, very similar and very, very different. And I think it's really all about teamwork and sharing ideals and information. And that's the way I see the path forward for a city like New York, which is so critical to the support of the rest of the country and even, in fact, the world. Go New York. Go New York indeed. Important and encouraging words from Darcy. And now we turn to our top retail producer, Annette Healy, the executive vice president of our tri-state regional retail brokerage services group. Annette moved into retail leasing more than two decades ago after starting her business career in international banking. We pick up our conversation as Annette reflects how she's seen the retail landscape in New York evolve. How do you expect retail to be different after the pandemic? What has been really interesting to me is talking to clients. They are laser focused on customer feedback, customer relationships. You know, the word health comes up so often, not only physical health, keeping people, customers, associates safe, but also mental health. You know, people are worried that people have been so isolated. So there's this sense of comfort and creating a sense of comfort for your customers that I think is going to change everything. I mean, one of my clients was saying that they've taught their sales associates to work through Zoom and to show product and to have these relationships. And, you know, they they said the customers love it because they're in their own home and they have this one-on-one conversation with a sales associate who they can't wait to get back in the store to see. But right now, when they can't, they've been able to make that relationship deeper, 
healthier, stickier. Uh, so there's been a lot of training, and I think that that's going to carry forward into the future. And I think it runs the gamut, whether it's financial services or beauty or fashion or tech. It is becoming a mantra that is uh, resonant, and it's resonating with the customers. Let's get a little bit more granular and talk about the physical space. And New York uh, is probably 20 cities in one. If you go from Fifth Avenue to Soho to the Far East Side to the West, I mean, it, it, you can't just say New York is this. It is a, a city of different neighborhoods. But at the same time, uh, the physical space needs, desires of retailers is changing. Tell me some of the big picture themes you see in the future. Well, I do think that um, you're really right. I mean, I think the pandemic has shed a huge spotlight on the residential markets. And I think that there is a migration. We're already seeing it with some of the big beauty players of, you know, that normally have flagships are now doing more neighborhood stores, um, getting closer to the customer. Uh, however you do it, whether it's, you know, via e-commerce, whether it's Instagram, whether it's uh, actual physical bricks and mortar, that is is going to become the clarion call. So I, I do think we're going to see much more of this sort of flagship in a daytime population environment where hopefully tourists will eventually come back. And then the hub and spoke kind of idea where you're going to be able to touch the customer in some way, whether it's a pop-up, whether it's just a three-month experience, uh, the increasing fragility of uh, the demand has meant that landlords are becoming a lot more amenable to different structures. I think that's going to breed a lot of creativity and uh, excitement in the retail space because it, it, it's a lot of newness. And real estate has always kind of been the anchor where you've got to be there for 10 years. But I think we're going to see some big changes. I mean, even right now, where I mean, on the health side, you know, it's not just people's health, it's pet health. A lot of uh, veterinary clinics opening up. Dental has now become, you know, as opposed to going up to some remote office on the, at the Empire State Building. Now they're doing, you know, glamorous salons where you can go in and have all kinds of teeth treatments and, and feel like it's a luxury product. This kind of innovation is what retail is known for. I mean, retail like New York City is ever resourceful and ever resilient. Let's talk about two of the themes you just mentioned there a moment ago, Annette. Uh, one of them was the fragmentation theme, which is the flagship and then have this hub and spoke model, smaller stores closer to the customer. And the other was the changing lease structures. Tell me about how those have evolved because landlords have been saying, no way, I don't want that. But now you're telling me landlords are willing to accept that. Tell me about that. Well, we have a lot of dark stores. So having creativity on the part of landlords is just, it's necessary that they're gonna to have to partner more significantly with their tenants. And it's a hard conversation to have, but I think that there's definitely been some blinking and we are seeing some much more accommodative structures. Now, you know, for a lot of tenants, it doesn't work because they must have their brand uh, displayed in a way that is consistent with their overall brand package or story. And they are not going to spend that kind of money on a build out for a short-term deal. So you're always gonna have that um, yin and yang of the, the startups, the people who really want 
to uh, just experiment. And there are a lot of establishments around the country now that are speaking to this. Like if you look at the uh, seaport in Boston, you know, they have a whole program of tiny homes really on the green there where they, you know, one company can take over all of them and really do a brand extravaganza for a couple of months or a number of tenants can take them. And it's just driven a lot of traffic. It's very exciting. So I think that this is something that uh, we're going to see in a more consistent basis, particularly in new developments. I wrote a short blog last year called New Rent about uh, retail specifically. In in addition to these more flexible, shorter-term structures, I also talked about the possibility of landlords being more partners with their retailers than they have been in the past, not just on a percentage rent basis, but what this, this may sound like blasphemy to some retailers, but sharing in some of the internet sales uh, in the trade zone near your store. Are you hearing any types of partnerships like that uh, being discussed? I have not. You know, one of the um, problems or one of the challenges to do that is the way those sales are booked. So if I walk into a store see something I want and buy it, that goes through that cash system, that goes through that whole avenue of information. If I see it, but go home and go online and buy it, that is allocated to a completely different accounting structure. So being able to capture that information, I don't see logistically how you do it. If I go into a store in Manhattan and they have to ship the product from one of their stores in San Francisco, that sale would go to the Manhattan store. Uh, It would not go to the San Francisco store because the company is just moving product and then the percentage rent would have to be paid in the New York store. So we, we do see that kind of conversation, but to do the accounting, to trap the e-commerce that is the cloud around that, I, 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 logistically, I, I mean, it's not my forte, but I haven't heard anybody tell me how they could do it. Let's uh, talk very briefly. Manhattan is Manhattan, uh, the crown jewel in so many ways. But we have a bigger market here with the Bronx, with Queens, and with some of these other outlying areas. Um, How do you see retail evolving there, and there's a big place, versus Manhattan in the years to come? The outer boroughs are, I think they've been flourishing during all of this time, as opposed to you know, the heavily dependent on CBD daytime population, you know, those those markets are not super vibrant because of international tourism. They're super vibrant because they've got a lot of people who live there um, and who have needs. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think they've been the beneficiaries of uh, less commutation into Midtown. You know, so we've lost here all the little restaurants and so forth that are just suffering terribly in Midtown because you don't have the residential. Um, But yeah, the outer boroughs, I think, are doing really well. New York's infrastructure is its great strength, the trains, the planes, all that. Mm. But the best piece of infrastructure are your own two feet, the ability to walk uh, from place A to place. Would you agree with that? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I cannot imagine living, and I don't live in Manhattan, but I live in a small urban village, just a little bit north of the city, I would never live anywhere where you can't walk to everything. I mean, my husband and I, for the last 25 years, have had one car. We think it is a key element to staying vibrant, young, 
involved. And I know that the exurbs have been beneficiaries of the pandemic, but I think that in, in general, people want to be where they can walk down the street and pop into a cafe. I mean, that is, to me, heaven. So I'm going to ask you for your final thought, final thought that you share with your um, landlord, friends, what they should do, and final thought for young professionals coming up what they should be thinking about post-pandemic? Well, for young professionals coming up, I think that they are going to really want to be back in an office situation and meet people and, and have those adjacencies. I mean, I think that that's been what's missing for the young people in the business. They are not thriving sitting in an apartment remotely. That's not been a good place. So I just think the pent-up demand for that is going to create a tremendous amount of vibrancy in our market. Um, in terms of landlords... It really depends whether if it's a family, you know, assets that are owned by a big family, they've weathered these storms. They're, you know, have very different capital stacks. The, the big institutional landlords are a totally different story. But uh, we will all get through this. We just have to be patient. And there, there's going to be some continuing pain. But I think in 18 months or so, New York is going to look very much more like it used to. Now we jump back into our conversation with Mary Ann Tai, CEO of CBRE's New York Tri-State Region, as we talked about big projects that helped transform historic Times Square. Mary Ann has a great eye for neighborhoods. We pick up as Mary Ann and I delved into some gritty ideals that are rooted in a New York state of mind, resilience and reinvention. I feel very strongly that uh, while we have lived through a period that will change many aspects of how we all work in our office environment, there are too many core benefits that New York City possesses that are not going away. Start with the people. You know, it's a city where over 190 languages are spoken, where you can have the smallest community of interest and there's people will come to you with expertise and they're all around you. You want to scale your business? I can't think of a place where you can scale it easier than here. And if you want to learn your business and learn it at the highest level at which it's practiced, and I'm talking about everything from medicine through accounting, you come to this city. And you don't come to work out of your apartment. I guarantee that to you. So I tell you that there are these core benefits of scale, of diversity, by the way, of tolerance for diversity. It takes a lot to get a New Yorker uncomfortable, a lot. And um, the sheer notion that the way we work represents excellence. That's true from the guy who sells you hot dogs on the street who can tell you why his hot dogs are better than the guy a block away. So I don't think these things are changing. Again, I don't think there's gonna be a moment where it all rushes back. I keep saying, and you can feel it happening, particularly as the vaccine rolls out. Well, Marianne, CBRE has studied New York. We studied San Francisco. And, and while it's fair to say um, from a demographic perspective, we have seen a net outflow of gross number of people. We're seeing a net inflow of the most highly educated, most highly talented, and dare I say most productive people. 
Um, and, and we expect that to continue even if there is a gross outflow of people. But there are some that are saying, well, you know, the, the, the new kid on the block is Austin, Texas, is Nashville, is Denver, is Raleigh. What, what's your reaction to those folks? Amusingly, uh, recently I have a customer who told me that they wanted to relocate um, a significant piece of operations somewhere in the United States, and it was going to be 7,000 people they were going to hire. So I called the excellent Mark Seeley in our labor analytics group, uh, and I said to him, you know, these are the jobs, and uh, here are the cities, Austin, Nashville, uh, you know, every, everything, uh, Charlotte. And then there was like a beep, beep. And he said, it was just the cutest thing the way he did it because he was trying not to make me feel like I was dumb. Um, and, and he said, um, how long do they think it will take for them to get to 7,000 employees? I said, well, what do you mean? Um, I don't know, 18 months, two years? You know, they're not thinking of like phasing this in. And he said, Marianne, do you understand the size of the relative populations? He said, Austin's now at 950,000 people, Nashville's 600,000 people. You land this, this quantity of these kind of jobs, you've distorted the whole pay scale and the whole nature of that segment of the labor market in each of those locations. I, I, I don't think that's really how you want to do this. And I had this funny moment where I realized dumbbell, um, of course you can't just descend into a marketplace unless it's of significant scale to be able to have that. And frankly, that's why I think we're seeing so much tech growth in New York. We got the people. And we got the people who can, you know, do things that, as I say, would be obscure in another market. But you put it out into the ether here, 400 people show up at your door saying that they know how to do that. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about asset types for just a moment, because many of these buildings that are on the far west side that are being picked up by some of these tech firms are older industrial buildings. And we're now talking about data centers. We're now talking about life sciences. Talk about that. Is New York not, not just an office town anymore? First of all, uh, New York has never been just an office town. We have a history of repurposing our buildings. One of the saving graces of downtown post 9-11, one of the things that transformed our downtown market is that pre 9-11, 15,000 people lived south of Chambers Street. Today, that number's at 65,000 people going to 70,000 people. And you know where most of those buildings came from? Repurposed office buildings that had become functionally obsolete as offices. And I can tell you that we are going to see, and we're already seeing, office buildings being repurposed as life science um, buildings. And we're seeing um, the demand for warehouse, the consumption that takes place in a, in a relatively tight geographic area here surrounds us with a need for warehousing of all sorts. So yes, uh, do I think, by the way, that there's going to be more office space converted to residential? Yes, just not as much as people think because it's an expensive venture to do. What about the old hotel rooms? We had on this show a couple of weeks ago our uh, Bob Webster and a few of our top uh, hotel folks. And um, unfortunately, we predict 20, 25,000 hotel rooms in New York uh, may never reopen. Uh, will those become uh, apartment buildings? Yeah, I think that there's a variety of residential type uses. For example, uh, student housing is an ongoing challenge here in the city. 
uh, not only for the colleges and universities, but for medical institutions. You go to the Upper East Side and you'll find that many of the buildings that have been taken over there house the doctors, the nurses, the techs, people who actually need to be near uh, the hospitals where they work. And that, in fact, part of the recruitment package in order to get people into our market, I mean, I don't know if you followed this, NYU Langone has now announced that it will charge no tuition for medical school and they will provide room, board, and a salary to all medical students. The, the trick is you got to get in. If you qualify as one of those glorious gifted people, they're going to house you for free for four years. So what is NYU Langone doing in its neighborhood? It's going out there trying to find buildings that they're going to stick medical students in now that they have to give them housing. So uh, I must tell you, I lived in medical housing uh, for New York Hospital. My husband was uh, on staff at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and we lived for more than a decade across the street because it was easiest for him to be able to run from the hospital housing across uh, to see his patients. That's a great story. By the way, comment about the residential market in New York. Um, this first two months of 2021, it's been a hot market, basically, in uh, Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. What people are doing are using the time to, to move up. Either more space, outdoor space, better location, whatever, and they're taking advantage of, uh, effectively, a real price correction that's occurred across the market. One of the things that you mentioned was the outdoor space, and that really goes to the key word of 2021, might be the key word, is wellness. Now, I know that pre-pandemic, the number one amenity in New York was outdoor space, but wellness, how is that going to transform New York City real estate? The good news is we were already on that path in terms of office space. The higher end buildings of our city have added all manner of wellness, whether that be air filtration, whether it be actual classes, whether it be providing food options for people that are very healthy. Um, but Beyond that now, no one is building or renovating who is not also going to issues that have to do with air filtration and circulation and, in general, uh, creating an environment that allows people to engage with the uh, natural rhythms of daylight and the day. I mean, um, the days of the office tower that had those dark black film on the windows to keep sunlight out, all of that's gone. Um, everybody is looking to both engage with nature, but at the same time um, to filter it in such a way that you're experiencing it in the best way possible. It's the major selling point. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, foosball tables, uh, etc. that's sort of been pushed to the side. And now what people are really focused on is, you know, am I safe in my environment in terms of health? Let's talk now about the ESG component and the social component to it. Speak to a lot of developers and they say, well, why don't you build in some of these emerging neighborhoods? Why don't you build in places that need it, opportunity zones or otherwise? Um, we think that's an emerging trend. What's your point of view? The trend that I think is going to uh, be most compelling is definitely the, the new uh, buzzword, the 15-minute city trend. And that that is what's going to help New York's underdeveloped neighborhoods really flourish. Because if you can bring the jobs to where people live, and if you can bring uh, the apartments to where people work and, and mix that with neighborhood retail throughout, you've made yourself a much more hospitable environment for people. You know, I, I, I've often joked about what are the luxuries of life in New York City. 
And among the three greatest luxuries, I always say one of them is walking to work. Um, and by the way, the other two, just to let you know, are silence, if you have that. And the last is excess space, closet space, whatever. You, if you have all three, you're by definition at the higher end of life in the city. So I do think we're going to see more dispersion of people throughout the city. It's also going to be about making the central business districts like downtown and like Midtown South already more work-live play than just work. Well, I, I agree with your comment there, and walkability is, is key. In terms of infrastructure in New York, let's just talk about something that's a little touchy, but I got to go there. One of the things that many people think that's holding New York back um, is the same thing that makes it great, is its mass transit. When will people get back on the trains? I would start by telling you a couple of different things. One is that I, I have no doubt that we have the best minds at the helm of the MTA. Secondly, we now have a democratic administration in Washington that is not looking to punish New York, but in fact, with uh, our senior senator as the uh, majority leader in the Senate, the likelihood of getting significant infrastructure money into the city, starting with our gateway project, but others as well, is it's actually already high because there's some infrastructure money coming in this COVID relief bill to uh, just get things started. So if you listen to the guys who run the subway, the MTA, they'll tell you that they're in a lot better shape as a result of that bill than they were before it. I think that we have the talent in place. What we need to do is figure out how to finance the work that has to be done. And because of the scale of our subway system and the age, of course, it's a job that will never end. The concomitant problem, by the way, is our homeless problem. And I think that that is an enormous challenge, and they almost have to be solved in relationship to one another. We can get new uh, signals uh, for the train line, but what we need to do is keep the cars clean and safe and to keep it from becoming a place of housing for people who need better um, better situations. So, so Marianne, one of the very many famous songs about New York, New York, New York. If you could make it here, you could make it anywhere. Um, do you agree with that? Yes, because New York is a place where you only succeed if you develop strategies to overcome obstacles. Because obstacles are a given in the New York requirement. Every so often, by the way, I'll have a, a developer who works nationally or internationally, and they'll say to me, do you understand that it's not this hard to build a building in pick any place practically? Not, I don't mean San Francisco, okay, but, but, you know, other parts of the country. And I will laugh out loud. And I said, yes, I've heard that before, that you don't have to uh, go to the kind of crazy extremes we go to in order to make a project viable. So that's why New York is uh, a testing ground. On the other hand, when you make it in New York, everybody wants to replicate it, everybody wants a piece of the success, etc. So that's why you put yourself to all the problems. I'd like to thank all of our guests for being part of our New York Story special. Marianne Tai, Annette Healy, and of course, Darcy Stakem whose return marked a full year since she was our very first guest last spring. And there's plenty more to come in the weeks and months ahead, including spotlight episodes on other markets around the world. For more information, please visit our website, cbre.com slash 
The Weekly Take. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a note. And also subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks as always for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.